الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا Now we come to the continuing the, 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 the department of writing uh, military archives and registry Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman radiallahu ta'ala narrated that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said record the names of Muslim soldiers and I wrote he said like he wrote 1500 men So this is something to, uh, similar to what we would call the military archives. There were uh, grants that, that were written down to people. Uh, so how much per a person is given as a salary or as a grant or as a fund from public money because they were doing service, military service, for example. That was something that uh, was written down. And... Uh, And even after that, when the Prophet ﷺ passed away and people came to Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu an, he, uh, he, Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala an, changed the writing, but he didn't change the amount. So it's, uh, it's mentioned here, كَانَ صَنَادِدُ قُرَيْشِ The leaders of Quraysh. كَانُوا يَأْخُذُونَ الْعَطَاءَ بِالْضَبْطِ مِنْهُ صلى الله عليه وسلم. They used to take their money. in exact way from the Prophet ﷺ. So they came to Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala an ليغير لهم الخط to change the writing for them. Possibly to change the way it is written or possibly to sign, even to sign it. Hudayfa radiallahu ta'ala an used to, uh, and this is another form of writing, relates mostly to, uh, to finance. Writing the date tree estimation. That's called Al-Kharas. Al-Kharas. So Al-Kharas with a sad. Kharasa in Arabic means to estimate something. To estimate something. And also it's used to refer to lying. Qutil Al-Kharasun. The liars, may they, uh, may, be, uh, may they perish. So the uh, estimation of, 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 uh, of uh, crops, of dates, before they actually ripen. So uh, to decide the zakah. <coughs> Az-Zubayr radiallahu ta'ala an used to file charity sums. So uh, Hudayfa does the estimation of the crops. Az-Zubayr would write the sadaqat. Sadaqat here could mean zakah as well. Okay, so how much of this is, is going to be in zakah? So estimating how much zakah will come, zakah revenues will come to the Baytul Mal before. It's similar to making a. Yes, similar to budgeting before actually the, the budgets come in. So we estimate that next year the revenues of the government will be like this. The public revenues will be like this. So we start planning uh, our expenses beforehand, that all based on estimation. Soldiers were asked about their age as well. If someone is underage, they would be returned. Ibn Umar radiallahu ta'ala narrates, عُرِطُ عَلَى وَأَنَا في جيش في جيش وأنا ابن أربع عشر سنة فلم يقبلني. The Prophet sent me back when I was presented to him and I was 14 years. ثم عرضت عليه من قابل فقبلني. Like the next year when I was came to him, he accepted me. <coughs> the Prophet also sent people away if they haven't taken permission of their parents. Uh, a man came from Yemen and he left his parents and the Prophet sent him back. And we take from that. What I would extract, I personally extracted from that is the permissibility of exempting certain people from military service if they have other responsibilities. 
in many countries where there is national service, people who are, for example, he is the only son of his parents, or he is the breadwinner of the family, or something similar to that, you would exempt them from military service because they are the only son, or he is the breadwinner, or he has other responsibilities. And the Prophet sent these people even though there was need for these people to serve national service, for example. You wouldn't take one son from his family and put him, send him to the forefront of the war, and then if, he's, if he dies, this family gets affected. Again, you know, the value of man, the value of, hum, of human life takes priority over anything else, even the security and the safety of the state. <coughs> Income and revenues were written down by what we would call tax collectors, ummal, and accounts were revised later on. Uh, we have also what we would call the uh, the uh, governors and the judiciary. Governors and the judiciary. The Prophet ﷺ appointed governors to do specific jobs and appointed them on different places. Remember when the Prophet ﷺ passed away, the Muslim, <coughs> his so, the sovereignty of the Muslim state... It, literally covered most of the whole Arabian Peninsula. So he had, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Attab ibn Usaid. He was his governor for Mecca. After he came back from Mecca, he appointed him on Hajj first, and then he was his governor for Mecca. And he was less than 20 years old. Badan, Badan was originally the governor of Yemen in the name of Kisra, the Persian king. Because Yemen was a very strategic point it was always a spot of fighting between the Persians and the Romans. So, and we know that the Persians and the Romans were always in fights with each other. So whoever is victorious, they will have control over him. In the, uh, before the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, the Romans were already in Yemen. Abraha. Not the whole of Yemen, like big part of Yemen. So Abraha al-Habashi, who was Abyssinian, Christian, he was representing his country which was representing the Roman state because they were Christian, even though they had like two different uh, churches. Because <laughs> the Abyssinians were always Orthodox. So even though they, they had two different churches, but because they were unified with the religion, they had some religious affiliation. But with time, what happened? The, the, uh, the Persians defeated the Roman, uh, the Roman peers, and they took control over Yemen. At the time of the Prophet ﷺ, when he sent a message to Kisra, the Kisra did not speak directly to the Prophet ﷺ. Whom did he send to? He sent to a man called Badan. He was his governor in Yemen. So Badan sent two men to speak to the Prophet ﷺ and investigate. Why did he send such a message to Kisra? So the Prophet ﷺ said to them, stay. He said like to, to them, stay here for three days. Or come, to, come in a few days to me. So they stayed in Medina and they came to the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet ﷺ said to them, he received the revelation telling him that Kisra's, Kisra has lost his position, has lost his throne, that his son, uh, his son killed him. So, and that was an answer to the dua of the Prophet ﷺ when he knew that he cut his message, he tore his message apart. The Prophet ﷺ said, may Allah cut his kingdom. So his son killed him at night. And that was like two, three days after, the, like after these guys had arrived. So the Prophet ﷺ sent 
to these guys and said, come. They were in Medina. And he said to them, my Lord has told me that your sahibakum, that your, your, your king has been killed by his son. So that's a big news. And it's impossible for someone to receive such news from Persia in two days. So these guys went quickly to Yemen to tell Badan. And Badan, by that time, he hasn't received anything. So he said, let's wait. If this man is truthful, then he's a prophet. <laughs> if he's not truthful, no one can make such a big statement. Like at such night, at such time, Kisra was killed. So when the news came confirming what the Prophet ﷺ said, Badan accepted Islam. That's why Yemen became Muslim. So the Prophet ﷺ confirmed him in his position as a governor of Yemen. Abu Musa al-Ash'ari was sent to Zabid and Adan, which are part of Yemen, right? But again, you know, as we said, that Badan was governing big part of Yemen, but the rest of Yemen was not under his, uh, under his govern, governorship. Sheher uh, ibn Badan, that's the son of Badan, Sheher ibn Badan, he became the, uh, the, the governor of Sana'a after his father. And Amr ibn Sheher uh, al-Hamadani, Amr ibn Sheher al-Hamadani, he became also a governor of Yemen. Al-Harith ibn Bilal al-Muzani, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam put him on Jadila from Tayyip, that's in the north. Uh, eastern side of the, Arab, of the Arabian Peninsula, close to what we know today as Kuwait. That's, that's the place of Tayyip. Salama ibn Yazid al-Ju'fi, the Prophet ﷺ put him as a governor on At-Ta'if. Safiyya uh, ibn Amr, the Prophet ﷺ put him on Banu Tha'laba. Imru al-Qais ibn al-Asbagh al-Kalbi, on the tribe of Kalb. Al-Ala ibn al-Hadrami, on Bahrain. Uh, Bahrain in those days is not the small, uh, the small island that we have today. Bahrain, naam? But Al-Hadrami maybe is from Hadramur. Yes. But remember that in those days, the, the people who lived in the, in the south, they, 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 they kind of were widespread all over. Uh, so Al-Bahrain in those days was what we call today Emirates, Qatar, and, and, and the, that eastern side of Saudi Arabia. Anything that, that comes across as like uh, overseeing the two seas. The Persian Gulf and beyond. Amr ibn Hazm al-Ansari, the Prophet ﷺ sent him to Najran. And Najran is in the south. Najran is in the south. You know, today we, we have that area and we have a place called Jazan. City in Saudi Arabia called Jazan in the south as well. That city, Jazan, is the place of Sayyidina Abu Hurairah. Sayyidina Abu Hurairah comes from the south. Uh, Farwa ibn Masik. The Prophet ﷺ sent him on a tribe called Murad and Midhaj, and that's in Yemen, Midhaj. And Al-Munzir ibn Sawi, the Prophet ﷺ placed him on Hajar. Hajar, again, is on the, uh, Arab, uh, on the Arabian Gulf as well, Hajar. It is close to the Mam and these places today, and it's known to be a place of dates. Like It was a big date market. So they say in the, in the, in the Arab proverb, حَامِلُوا تَمْرٍ إِلَىٰ سُوقِ هَجَر You should not carry dates to the markets of Hajar. Like, don't carry coal to Newcastle. Yeah, so this, don't carry dates to the markets of Hajar. Because it's a place where people 
sell dates. You're carrying dates to that place you no one is going to, to buy. You're carrying goods to a place. You go to a, a place, court of barbers, and then you open a barber shop. This is not going to, to help you with your business at all. So we see from this something very, very interesting that the Prophet ﷺ would keep people in their own areas if they, they, they are from a specific area. He would keep them as governors there because they know the people and the habits of people and the norms of people better than anybody else. He وسلم, also used to write a dis, uh, like a decree for them to be appointed, an appointment decree. He وسلم, also to communicate with them through his... Uh, through Barid, through like post postmen, and he sallallahu alaihi wasallam used to teach them. Uh, in Al Muwatta, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. This is uh, related now to Qada. Uh, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, as we know, was like the supreme judge. He sallallahu alaihi wasallam has narrated in Al Muwatta hadith Um Salama. He said, "Inna ana bashar, I'm a human, and you turn with your litigation to me. Wa inna kum taqtasimuna ilay." One of you may be more eloquent in presenting his case than his brother. And I judge in his favor based on what is presented to me. He's, he's very outspoken. He's very well-spoken. If I, by means of judgment, give any of you something that does not belong to him, that belongs to his brother, only because he's eloquent, then don't take it, for it's but a piece of fire. It's a piece of head. Like, don't let your eloquence <laughs> lead you to take something that is not, to appropriate something that is not yours. The Prophet ﷺ judged between people and uh, the ulama put together the qada's of the Prophet ﷺ, the judgments of the Prophet ﷺ, because it helps the judges to, uh, to, to, to see what are their responsibilities. So amongst the things in, uh, that he ﷺ, uh, judged in is theft. He judged in big, in big cases, like theft, defamation, divorce, inheritance, uh, sometimes even lost and found. <laughs> so he وسلم, normally would judge in big things, big cases, and he would judge sometimes in cases that are small, but to show his humility. He also used to set the etiquette of the court, admonishing the litigants, the... Uh, we all know the hadith about don't judge when you're hungry. He would suspend the bankrupt. And he did that, sallallahu alayhi wa If someone is bankrupt, he would suspend him from getting involved in business. <laughs> because you get involved in business, take people's money. And then you know that there is nothing that you're going to lose. You're basically losing the people's money and they won't be able to do anything with you. Boycotting sinful people. Exiling strife makers. Anyone who would cause strife in the society, the Prophet ﷺ would send them to exile keeping them away from the society. He wouldn't apply any punishment in the masjid. And this is something very, very interesting. The Prophet ﷺ wouldn't apply punishment in the masjid. Today, in some Muslim countries, when they want to apply punishment, they apply it right after Salatul Jum'ah, right in front of the masjid. The masjid is not the place of applying the punishments. Uh, he also had appointed, he appointed judges. Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. Uthman Umar ibn Khattab was appointed as a judge we take that from a statement of Uthman ibn Affan Uthman ibn Affan said to Abdullah ibn Umar he said go and judge go and I appoint you as a judge would you excuse me 
what about excusing me? Because remember, the Sahaba didn't like to be judges. It's a big responsibility. فقال, why do you dislike? Why do you dislike it? وقد كان أبوك يقضي. Why do you dislike it while your father did it? He was a judge. Like since you, your father did it, why do you dislike it? Said Na Ali ibn Abi Talib radiyallahu taala an. He said, in he said that إذا جلس إليك الخصماني. Said Na. Uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib was told by the Prophet ﷺ, when two litigants come to you, don't judge between them until you listen to the second, as you listen to the first. For this makes it clearer to you. Sayyidina Ali radiallahu ta'ala and said, since that day, I have never doubted a judgment that I passed. Because he applied, sometimes we rush to listen to one side and then we, we never look at the other side of the story. They say, a hadith or a tradition narrated that if you see one person, with one eye, comes to you with one eye, <laughs> and he says, someone has poked my eye out, don't believe him until you see the other, possibly he lost both eyes, so when you see someone saying, look, someone has, has cut my face, well, wait until you see the other person, don't rush and uh, judge in their favor, he وسلم, sent Mu'adh radiallahu ta'ala to Yemen, and he sent uh, Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, one of the things that are actually uh, interesting is how old was a judge? Were the judges did did the was there a specific age for the judges? Sayyidina Ali radiallahu ta'ala said to the Prophet, وسلم, Ya Rasulullah, you send me to Yemen as a judge while I'm still young. The Prophet and I don't have experience in, in judging in judging between people. The Prophet continued, sent him. Yahya bin Aktham was only twenty-one years. 21 years old when the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam appointed him, hmm? appointed him, and they they say, قيل له كم سن القاضي when when Yahya ibn Affan when Yahya ibn Aktham Affan when Yahya ibn Aktham was appointed as a judge, he was asked how old are you, he said, uh, just like Attab ibn Usaid. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa appointed him. And I was older than Mu'adh when the Prophet sallallahu sent him to Yemen. So we take from that, that the age, as long as it's reasonable, it should not be a, a cause to refuse someone being a judge. Were the judges given salary? Yeah, this is a public post. So Attab ibn Usaid radiallahu anhu was given 40 ounces of silver, something like 160 dirhams. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was given salary. By Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu and Abu Ubaidah, when he became a Khalifa, <laughs> he said to them, I'm going to continue my job. They said to him, what I used to do, the business that I used to do. They said, no, you can't. Now you have a job, that's, you are the Khalifa. He said, but I need to feed my children. So they said to him, we will give you what is given to every average, to an average Muslim. Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu anha narrated in the hadith, يأكل الوصي بقدر عمالته like a guardian, someone who is appointed as a guardian over a, a, a minor, he should earn according to his work. There was something very interesting also in the in the uh, in the state that is called العدليه or the Supreme Judicial Council. You know, uh, judges were not free, did not have free hand, because they are humans at the end of the day. So they could be corrupted as well. They, even though they are a judicial apparatus in the state, but 
there had to be a supervising and an overseeing institution that looks at their activities. So the Adliya is a council composed of the power of the Sultan and fairness of the judiciary to affect that which judges who and whoever is below them is unable to pass. Something big. It looks at evidence, indications, reports, and uh, forces of opponents to... Sometimes people go to the mahkamah, uh, to the court of law, and they're not willing to listen. It could be something really bigger than, than just a normal court of law. So that is, that's where the Supreme Judicial Council comes in. The Prophet ﷺ attended a disputation. The Prophet ﷺ attended a disputation between Az-Zubayr ibn al-Awwam and another man over a water place. Whom does it belong to? Even though it was not uh, normal for the Prophet ﷺ to attend things like these. Why? Because it was possibly, it needed the Prophet ﷺ to be present. Umar issued a decision that the term for a governor or a judge does not exceed two years. This is also very, very important when you appoint someone as a judge or put someone in a place, he would move people from one uh, job to another, uh, from one location to another. Because when someone stays in a place for so long, he might start getting support from the locals and even think of toppling the head of the state. We, we have seen in history individuals who are left in their place for so long, what they end up with declaring independence. Why? Because they have such a strong support in the local area. And we extract from this the permissibility of deciding the term for presidents and people in public offices to be termed with two years or four years or eight years. Why? Because the longer they are there, they, they might be corrupted by the job and then they will start collecting money for themselves. There were courtrooms. The Prophet ﷺ used the mosque as a courtroom. And the Khulafa as well, they did the same thing. Imam al-Bukhari reported. He said, وسلم, mosques are built for the remembrance of Allah and judgment. But at the time of Uthman ibn Affan, he built a courthouse specified for that. He وسلم, summoned witnesses and witnesses were not paid for, to, to give witness. They were chosen due to integrity. As well, the Prophet ﷺ wrote to Thaqif and Sayyidina Ali radiallahu ta'ala an, when he wrote a letter to Thaqif, the Prophet ﷺ sent a, a, a message to them and uh, Sayyidina Ali and Sayyidina Al-Hasan and Sayyidina Al-Hussein uh, like were witnesses that the Prophet ﷺ sent that to them. Sometimes when you, you know, when you send a message to someone, you take witnesses that this message was sent you know, uh, recorded delivery. That's like possibly an, a backing for recorded delivery. When you send a message to someone and you want to make sure that it has arrived, you need to send recorded delivery. Recorded delivery is a kind of a replacement for getting witnesses. You're basically getting the post office <laughs> to witness that you have sent this message, right? To make sure that it has actually been delivered. Because the person might receive it if it's sent by like standard mail and he said well I haven't received it where did it go I don't know or having like a tracking number to know exactly where did it go that is because of the content of the message if the content of the message or the content of the communication is important contracts and transaction registrar 
you know, today, when you uh, uh, make like a corporation of a company or something, you have a registrar, you have a company house. When you have a contract, uh, something like a land registry, when you buy a house or something, then you, you transfer the, uh, the, 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 um, the deed into your name and, and register that in the, in the land registry. So there were transaction registrars. The Prophet ﷺ got Muawiyah to write the contract of manumitting his slave Abu Rafi. And Ali radiallahu an, and Uthman radiallahu an, and Abu Bakr radiallahu an were the witnesses. Al-Mughira ibn Shu'ba and Imam Al-Hussein and uh, Al-Hussein ibn Numair, they used to register debts, writing down debts. Uh, we had what we would call uh, the probate courts. The probate courts. These probate courts uh, were in Medina. Uh, they, they call it Mahakimul Mawarith. These probate courts, they mainly look into estate division after people pass away, estate division and if there are minors involved or not. In Medina, Zayd ibn Thabit presided over judging the, and issuing fatwas, recitation and estate division, estate division courts. So there were uh, specific uh, courts for this. Uthman <coughs> ibn Shihab narrated if Uthman and Zayd were to die at certain time, people wouldn't have had a guide to the science of estate division. So that that, that was a, something that some Sahaba kept as their own thing. The power of attorney. The Prophet uh, Ali radiallahu ta'ala deputized Abdullah ibn Ja'far to represent him against Talha ibn Ubaidillah in a case of litigation over a stone built structure in front of Uthman radiallahu anhu. Uthman was the Khalifa. There was a litigation between Sayyidina Ali and Sayyidina Talha, who, to whom does this building belongs? Because it was like on the, on the borders of a land. Between part of it belonged to Sayyidina Ali, part of it belonged to Sayyidina Talha. So he deputized Abdullah ibn Ja'far. There were real estate courts, surveyors even. And this is, you know, today when you buy a house and you send the surveyor to make sure that the house does not have any issues or problems or something like that. So sending the, these, these individuals, the surveyors, two brothers owned a house. And one of them erected a wall. After his death, the children claimed that the wall belongs to them. Hudayfa radiallahu ta'ala was sent as a judge between them. And he judged in favor, in, one, in, in, in favor of one of them. How? He looked at the wood. He looked at the, the logs of the ceiling. The knots of the bringing the walls together. Which side is it? Wajada ma'aqida al-qamti talihi. Like when you have a wall and then you tie the... the, the imagine, here's a, here's a wall and you are extending the logs of your ceiling. If this is your wall, you can tie from your side. If you tie, if you tie the logs to the wall from your side, from the top, that means it was your right. And if the other had his logs but it's not tied, it could mean that you're just giving him the permission to use it. So he looked at the knots. Which side is it? Like today when you send people to say, well, okay, this part of the land belongs to this house, this part of the wall belongs to that house. We have also uh, the Prophet ﷺ delimited and planned the house of Uthman ibn Affan. And this is something uh, 
that was very very interesting the prophet sallallahu uh, he kind of uh, planned the house of uthman he said here you should have your bedroom here you should have this here you should have that and he sallallahu alaihi even did some road planning in medina as as mentioned by Sidi abdul hay as well uh, there was also the market overseer you know that was one of the of the jobs uh, that uh, that is uh, that that exists that's called muraqib al aswaq you know when in the market making sure uh, that the goods that are sold are not expired have not expired making sure that the prices are kept within the the accepted boundaries making sure that people don't hoard certain goods until it's very very expensive so that that job is the job of a man called al-muhtasib the hadith of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam as we all know he who cheats us does not is not one of us Where, when did that hadith come when the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was walking in the market saw a man selling dates and he put his hand in the pile of dates he found that the dates underneath are wet and the dates on the top are dry so he said why are you putting the wet dates underneath they are not suitable you're cheating people he said ya rasulullah you know there was rain and it became wet so i i put it underneath so that people don't see it if they see that it is wet people will lose it lose uh, they, they will not take it he said why didn't you should have put it on the top if they want to buy they buy if they don't want to to buy they don't he sallallahu alaihi wasallam also prohibited people from talaqi uh, rukban like people used to go out of the city and they find caravans bringing food imagine like you go to the harbor and you sail you sail and meet the ships before they arrive to the coast and buy all the stuff that they have that could harm them why because if they are coming here and they don't know exactly the state of the market they sell it to you at a cheaper price much cheaper price and then you cheating them so the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said naha an talaqi rukban you want to buy wait until these caravans arrive to the city and they see all the options all the options all buying options then they can sell to you or they can sell to somebody else he sallallahu alaihi wasallam used said ibn al-as on the markets of mecca so he used to go around and 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 and, and he used to make sure that the measurements are correct as well some assistant jobs to the qadi is what we would call the police and the night patrols we call it al-asas making sure that at night people are safe there are areas that could be dangerous the prophet sallallahu alaihi when he arrived in medina he used to he stayed late one night and he said sallallahu alaihi i wish that a man can guard us tonight so he وسلم, is asking for someone to, to protect them, to guard them at night because it, could, it is dangerous. Remember that Medina was attacked by different tribes and there were so many enemies. People used to carry the swords all the time. Whereupon he said, we heard a, a noise of a, of a weapon. So he said, who is that? Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas said, he, he made dua for him sallallahu and the first one to patrol at night was Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu Sayyidina Abu Bakr said to him walk in the streets of Medina and make sure uh, 
if you know today like when you when the police at night get someone for uh, being uh, for noise and disorderly he makes so much noise and disorder or or like after 11:30 you're not allowed to raise uh, to make so much noise or to annoy people Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu ta'ala an walked in the streets of Medina at night so he arrested a man in the hadith in Abu Dawood fa'ata birajulin aqbala birajulin taqturu lihiyatuhu khamra like he arrested a man and they could see alcohol coming out of his beard so he was fully drunk Right? He was drinking that, that alcohol came out of his beard. So Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Sa'id arrested him and he brought him. So the guy said to him, aren't you supposed not to spy on people? He said, well, yes, we are supposed not to spy on people. But when you see someone in the street with alcohol dripping from his beard, that's not spying. فَقَالَ نُهِينَ عَنِ التَّجَسُّسِ Yes, we've been banned from spying. لَكِنْ إِنْ ظَهَرَ لَنَا شَيْءٍ نَأْخُذُ بِهِ when something is clear in front of our eyes, and one important thing that is very, very interesting as well, uh, attached to this is punishments, men, men's prison. Thumama ibn Athal, radiallahu ta'ala, one of the Sahaba, uh, he was asked by some people, what punishment would the Prophet apply on them? And Thumama was not supposed to disclose what he knew. But he told them. So he regretted what he did. And he decided as a punishment for himself, he will tie himself to one of the pillars of the masjid until the Prophet ﷺ unties him. And the Prophet ﷺ said, since he did that to himself, I will not untie him until I receive revelation saying if he is sinful or not. So the Quran came in Surah At-Tawbah وَآخَرُونَ اَعْتَرَفُوا بِذُنُوبِهِمْ خَلَطُوا عَمَلًا صَالِحًا وَآخَرَ سَيِّئًا عَسَى اللَّهُ أَنْ يَتُوبَ عَلَيْهِمْ Those who have uh, confessed their sins, they have mixed good deeds with bad deeds, Allah will forgive them. So the Prophet ﷺ released Sayyidina Thumam ibn Uthal رضي الله تعالى We take from this, even women's prison, the daughter of Hatim, At-Ta'i, uh, when, she, when she came, uh, she was uh, with the ladies in the corner uh, outside the door of the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ where the women would be imprisoned. So there was like a place for imprisonment. Imam Abu Yusuf narrate, narrated, and this is very, uh, very important, that uh, these individuals used to be provided food and clothing. So in, in a prison, it was not, and, and this is Imam al-Mawardi, uh, quote, is quoted here. He said, Al-Habsu al-Shar'i, legal imprisonment, laysa huwa sajnu fi makanin dayyiq, is not to put people in a tight place. When you imprison, like what is acceptable in Sharia as a prison, is not to put people in a tight cell, where they don't receive any sunlight, where they are tortured, and they feel loneliness, and, but, وَإِنَّمَا تَعْوِيقُ الشَّخْصِ It is to restrict the person from movement. What do you actually want from uh, imprisonment? To stop this person from harming the society, right or wrong. So there is no need for you to put him in a small cell where there is no sunlight. It is The main purpose of that is 
I should stop this person from traveling, for example. Whether it is in a house or in a masjid or something like that. Al-Hirmas ibn Habib narrates from his father, from his grandfather. Ma fa'ala asiruka ya akha bani tamim. Like, so that's, that's like... Uh, he was. He was. He was. He mentioned that what happened to a, a captive. He was kept in a house. So when someone is kept in a house, that's a form of imprisonment. So what we have today, what we have today, as a prison, as the Sidi Abdul Hay even specifically mentioned, he said, "Amal habsu ladhi huwa al-an." As for the prison that we have today, "Fala yajuzu inda ahad min al-Muslimin." It's not permissible in any Muslim. Uh, scholar to any Muslim scholar, that's not permissible. Gathering people, al kathir fi gathering people, a big number of people in one place. Fala salata They can't do their salat, they can't do their wudu. That's not imprisonment. He says that's not acceptable at all. And uh, Imam Abu Yusuf, as I mentioned before, kanu yujruna ala al-masajin ta'aman wa sharaban. They used to provide them for food and 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 drink and and wakiswatan and clothing, like in the in the summer and uh, in the winter. Uh, one of the ways of punishing people was exiling them. Uh, one of the uh, uh, of of the ways of uh, of uh, uh, punishing people was boycotting them and so on and and, and so forth. Taking uh, a step further and talking about the uh, military. Uh, jobs and roles at the time of the Prophet The number of the battles of the Prophet and his expeditions reached 27 and some people say 26. With the expeditions, 35. So some people say 56 or 48 or 36. Anyway, the number of people who were killed from both sides throughout all of these years was 760 people. 760 people. People were assigned, one of the jobs related to the military expedition was the regent. The regent is someone who is appointed to look after Medina when the Prophet leaves to a battle. You know, when he leaves Al-Madina Al-Munawwara, you have to assign someone. And in when he went out to Tabuk, he assigned Muhammad ibn Maslama. When he uh, went out, he assigned Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum 13 times. <laughs> 13 times. Abu Lubaba al-Ansari, radiyallahu ta'ala, Ju'al ibn Suraqa, uh, Abu Ruhm al-Ghifari, and Siba' ibn Arfata uh, when he went out to Khaybar. He, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, also had what we would call military invoice. These are individuals who would go out and make some kind of military expeditions to explore. It's kind of investigation to explore, to see, to make sure that no one is about to attack Medina. Remember, they, 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 they were like uh, investigations. So in, in amongst them is Busr ibn Sufyan al-Khuza'i and Budayl ibn Umm As- uh, Asram. The Prophet them, sent them to uh, Khuza'a. Right? He sent them to Khuza'a, uh, asking Khuza'a to join the Prophet ﷺ in his conquest of Mecca. Remember that Khuza'a were attacked by a tribe called Bakr, who were the allies of Quraysh. And Quraysh helped their allies, Bakr, against Khuza'a. So Khuza'a sent to the Prophet ﷺ, complaining. 
and the Prophet ﷺ decided to attack Quraysh because they didn't keep their uh, promise and their treaty with him that they will not assist anyone against him and they will not assist anyone against his allies. So the Prophet ﷺ responded to Khuza and said, well, we, we will invade Quraysh, but you will help us. To do something like that, you can't send five, six people. He sent two people only to Khuza'a in a secret mission, saying, I want to seek your help uh, in, in conquest of Mecca. He sent Buraida ibn al-Hasib uh, to uh, Aslam to join him in Tabuk. So the Prophet Sallallahu used to send these, these are called military envoys. One of the things that are very interesting when we talk about the war kit of the Prophet Sallallahu is the flags and the banners. And uh, we, li we live today in, uh, in a world which places so much importance to the flags and the banners. We call this in, in Arabic, Al-Liwa'a The liwa some, some ulama said that, that the raya, the banner, and the flag are the same. But others said no. That the banner is a wrap is a wrapped flag. It's a it's a flag, but it is wrapped in such a way and it is a sign of the place of the king or the army leader. So people would recognize if the army leader has been killed from the banner that is with him, if it has fallen or not. While the flag is left to the wind <laughs> and it is a sign of the army. So the flag, the raya, uh, the raya is with the sahib al-harb, with the guy who is someone, someone who is representing the army. But the liwa is with the emir, is with the army leader. <laughs> so when the liwa falls, it means, uh, it means, the, the army leader is killed. But when the raya falls, it means like they have, they, they kind of lost, right? So there were people who carried the alwiya and they, 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 they carried the, the rayat, the, uh, the flags, including Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, radiallahu anhu, Umar, uh, Sayyidina Ali, Sayyidina Zubair, Sa'ad Ubad, uh, Sa ibn Ubada, Mus'ab ibn Umair, and others. And because the liwa, there is only one liwa, there is only one liwa. But there could be variety of flags. <laughs> because remember, the flag is for the army. And sometimes the army is composed of different armies. Like part of the army is coming from the tribe of Hudayn. Part of the army is coming from the tribe of uh, uh, Thaqif. Part of the army is coming from Quraysh. Because the army is made of different tribes, every tribe had its own Raya had its own flag, but the liwa is always one. And I'll, 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 I'll mention a hadith which is a bit uh, far from this, but to show you that, that how the liwa is different from the army. The Prophet ﷺ said, On the day of Qiyamah, every betraying individual, every, every person who makes betrayal there will be a banner for him on the day of Qiyamah <laughs> to show his position. He did not say, huh? He did not say, يُعْقَدُ <laughs> لَهُ Because the raya is a sign of a, a community. Well, the liwa is a sign of one individual. So, 
He used to tie, to tie the flag as a sign of appointment. So he said, Hamza is the Sahibur Raya. Hmm? The description of the Raya of the Prophet He had, his Raya was one arm by one arm. So about 50 centimeters by 50 centimeters. His Raya sometimes had a black and white and a crescent in it. So putting the crescent in the Raya, in the flag, is not something that is, that is new. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ made a, a raya, a, a flag for uh, Sa'd ibn Malik al-Azdi, and it, it, it was black and it had a white crescent inside it. The inscription of the raya of the Prophet ﷺ was La ilaha illallah Muhammadun Rasulullah. And it was made of different materials, sometimes wool and sometimes spotted velvet fabrics. The color of the Prophet ﷺ's raya flag was white, Sometimes yellow, sometimes gray, black, or even red. And he وسلم, used to call his uh, raya with a name. So he had a raya called Al uh, uh, Uqab. That's his famous, his famous flag. And he had a raya called Al Raiba. What is the benefit of the of the of, of a flag? What's the benefit of a flag? It gives people a sense of belonging. It gives people a sense of unity and brings them together. Just like, uh, you know, military music. It gives people strength. And in those days, they had the drums. Remember, they used to beat the drums before the armies and after the armies. And the Prophet wasallam, the Sahaba used to actually sing in the battle. Uh, looking at the, the army arrangements, and we, will, we will quickly... Go through this. The army arrangements, the Prophet wasallam used to arrange the armies. And this was something that Quraysh never did before. Quraysh <coughs> used to fight with the form of like hit and run. <laughs> like without any organization. And the strategic way of dividing the army into what we would call khamsa, five parts. The armies were divided into five parts. Something which you call Muqaddima, and then Maisara, and then Maymana, and Qalb, and Mu'akhira. The army would be like that. Muqaddima, the front, forefront, and then Maymana, that which is like on the, on the right and on the left, like right cotillion, left cotillion, and then Qalb in the middle. And normally the Amir will be in the Qalb. The, leader, the army leader will be in the middle. You can't put him in the forefront. Because he put him in the forefront, he, if he's killed, he's easily reached. And then you have the Mu'akhira. Who would be in the Mu'akhira? Possibly women and children, if they are in the, in the battle, if they are. Or would be people who have provision. Like uh, cook, cooks and like people who would cook and, and, and services and stuff like that. So that is called, they, they, they gave a description for the army and they said, Jaishun Khamis. A huge army, but the word Khamis comes from the word Khamsa. It's an army that is made of uh, left, right, and center, and front, and back. The benefit of this is the rearrangement of the army can give the, the, the enemy an impression that a new uh, number of soldiers have arrived. <laughs> so those who are on the right and those who are in the left, they face people on their side. But when the faces are changed next day, people might get an impression that 
that there has been uh, a new addition to the army. The Prophet Sallallahu used horses and he has a hadith in Bukhari. He owned horses Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and uh, Sayyidina Bilal radiallahu ta'ala an used to hold the rein for him and prepare his saddle. He used camels as well uh, and there were individuals who would look after the, the camels. Amongst them is Dharr ibn Abi Dharr al-Ghifari radiallahu ta'ala an. And uh, he sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam uh, had uh, leaders who held his uh, camels for him. Uh, one of them is uh, Karkara and Al-Abbas radiallahu ta'ala in the battle of Hunayn. He held his, his camel for him. And Abu Bakr during the sermon of uh, Hajjat uh, Al-Wada'a. And uh, the reason why we're mentioning this here as well uh, that uh, the Sahaba, Radwanullahi Ta'ala Alayhim, would not allow someone to come and take a position from someone who is assigned to that position amongst the, amongst the Sahaba. For example, if someone is assigned to lead the camel of the Prophet, not everyone can just jump and take it. Why? Because when someone is in a leading position like that, opening the gate for anyone to come close to him could be dangerous. Like imagine if a president is, 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 is people are given direct access to the president. They can kill him. They can assassinate him. The weapons. Some of the weapons that were used during the time of the Prophet ﷺ include swords. And we, we all know that swords uh, are seen to be amongst the, the most honorable uh, weapons uh, and, 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 and war kit. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had nine swords. Imam Al-Bulqini mentions them here. Inshallah, I'll, I'll be sending this to you. Uh, the Sahaba and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, how they used to carry their swords. They used to carry their swords, uh, place its strap on the right shoulder, on the right shoulder, and the sword under the left arm. So in this way, the sword, you, you're able to fight easier. Uh, some people would, would, uh, would put the strap around their waist. So sometimes when the waist is very slim, the strap might fall. And, and then your control of the sword is, is, is not as good. The Prophet ﷺ also used to sharpen his sword and polish it uh, frequently. The Prophet ﷺ mentioned the the ships and during his lifetime the Prophet ﷺ did not use ships for war as, as war tools meaning he did not fight in the sea but the ships were essentially used to bring the Abyssinians the Muslims from Abyssinia back to the Arabian Peninsula but he ﷺ gave glad tidings to a woman called Umm Haram bint Malhan who is buried today where? in Cyprus Sayyidah Umm Haram bint Malhan radiallahu ta'ala anha the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said uh, to her like the, you will be riding the sea meaning you'll be you'll be in the sea ghuzatan like in invasion in a, in a war mulukan ala al-asirra similar to kings on their thrones <laughs> so similar to kings on their thrones means like well established on the ships and uh, remember that Arabs were not actually experts in 
the sea. They were not experts and they were not very well known to to travel by sea that easily. They were not they were not masters in this. These are some of the other weapons that were used by the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam at his uh, his time. One of them is uh, catapults. He sallallahu alaihi after Fath Makkah, he besieged the people of Attaif. And in his besiege, they they did not they didn't allow the Prophet sallallahu to enter through the walls, and they they were very strong in uh, in their resistance. So the Prophet sallallahu used the catapults uh, to attack them, as mentioned by Ibn Hisham. There is something called. There is something called battering rams, which we got at Dabbabat, the battering rams. So the Prophet ﷺ also uh, commanded some of the Sahaba, Urwa ibn Mas'ud and Ghailan ibn Salama. We mentioned Urwa ibn Mas'ud and Ghailan ibn Salama. They were both sent by the Prophet ﷺ to learn how to make these battering rams. Uh, trenches, and we all re- remember the story of Nu'aym ibn Mas'ud al-Ashga'i. Uh, in the Battle of the Trench, when Sayyidina Salman al-Farisi advised the Prophet sallallahu to dig the trench, and there is here is like a uh, a drone. Done by the Romans first. Yes, that's why I said they were sent to learn, to learn. Mm. but it was not something known to Arabs. Mm. Arabs didn't actually use these battering rams, mm. so the Prophet sallallahu sent Urwa ibn Mas'ud al-Ashga'i. And uh, and Ghailan ibn Salama to, to learn how to make these battering rams And they came back and they used it And it was something very very new to Arabs We have mentioned here uh, Preparing for Al-Ahzab We said that Al-Madina uh, Al-Munawwara Was literally in the middle Here is the, the masjid of the Prophet And naturally Naturally Al-Madina Was protected from three sides It was protected from Two sides that are not mountained. One is Harrat Waqi. Harra is a volcanic space that is e- that's difficult for an army to cross. So there was Al Harra Sharqiya and Al Harra Al Gharbiya. This Harra, Al Harra Sharqiya, Harra Jabal Waqi, and the other one, the western side, is Harra Jabal Wadra. So both sides, Medina actually cannot be attacked from both sides. And in the bottom, there is something called Jabal Ayr. Jabal Ayr. That's actually a natural mountain that would stop people, would stop armies from attacking in Medina from the south. But there was like a passage in between that, that area. That's where Banu Quraidah used to live. So the Prophet ﷺ, when he asked Banu Quraidah to protect, he said, protect this side. That's you. Don't let Quraysh come from here. Now, Uhud is a bit far. Where would people be able to attack from the top? There is a small Jabal, a mount called Jabal Saleh. So the Prophet ﷺ dug the trench, that, that blue line. That's the trench that the Prophet ﷺ dug. Today when you go to, uh, when you go to Uhud and on your, way, in your, in your way back, you find what, what they call the seven masajid, which were actually seven points where the Sahaba ta'ala, would protect, huh? would protect the, the trench. So that was a tactic, a military tactic that was used by the Prophet ﷺ. He also ﷺ, had strategic military tactics, guides. Abu Khaythama, the Prophet ﷺ, remember, he knew Medina well, 
But he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to use individuals to guide his army. You don't want to take an army and to be, lo to be lost in the middle of Arabia. The Arabian Peninsula is not as, as, as simple as, as, as people might think of it. Some armies actually die in the, in, on their way to the battlefield. Some armies lose their mind. Uh, I read some, somewhere in, in history about an, uh, I think it was the Great Army, like the British Army uh, went to Spain, or, uh, no, sorry, the Spanish Army came to defeat, came to fight England, and by the time they came, like out of 10,000 or something like that, or like, uh, yeah, about 10,000 people, like most of them died. And only like 1,600 arrived and they had a lot of dysentery and a lot of diseases. So by the time they arrived here, they couldn't even fight. Why? Because the weather was not on their favor. You know, the weather was pushing their ships back. So they, they, were, they were very, very easily, very easy. And some of the military tactics just let people die in the, in the, in the, in the, in the desert. So the Prophet ﷺ used guides. Khaythama Abu Khaythama in the Battle of Uhud. A man from the tribe of Aslam in Hudaybiyah. Uh, remember, the tribe of Aslam lives, lives in between Mecca and Medina. Thabit uh, ibn Abdahak in Ghazwat Hamra al-Asad, which also is between Mecca and Medina. Jamil al-Ashja'i in Khaybar, even though Khaybar was not very far. He paid, sallallahu alayhi 20 sa'a to, to Jamil al-Ashja'i to, to guide them, even though some of these uh, guides were not Muslim. And they're leading, they're leading the Prophet ﷺ in a, in, into a military battle. There were individual spies as well. Aus ibn Khawli al-Ansari. He uh, left in, in year 7 in uh, Dhituwa. The Prophet ﷺ sent him. That's, a, that's one of the, the, the Uyun. They, they call the, a spy in Arabic, Ain. <laughs> Ain. Which means I, and it means the letter Ain as well, because he's Ain, Al Jasus. They call him Al Jasus. Jasus is the person who does the Jasus. Jassa in Arabic means to feel something. Jassa in Arabic to feel something. You know, when you check the temperature of someone, they call it, or check the, the palpitation, the heartbeats, they call Jassa Nabd. And physically, it means to, uh, to see the heartbeats, and metaphorically, it means to know what is happening. So when you, you have a problem with someone, you go and just nab, you send someone before, I see. You know, if a child has done something wrong and he wants to come home, so he sends his other brother before him to check if mom and dad are actually okay or not, uh, to see if the coast is clear. If it's not clear, he will not come home. <laughs> so that's called just nab. Uh, the, 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 the beast that will come before, al, uh, that came before al Dajjal is called Al-Jassasa. Uh, from that. So there, there, uh, Put, putting what we would call individual spies, uh, Bishr ibn Sa'ad and, 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 and others, they had what we mentioned before, sovereignty marks. When any army invades another country, it has to leave to say, okay, this is where we came. This belongs to us. So the Prophet ﷺ, on his way to At-Taif, he passed by a place called Harrat al-Ragha. Harrat al-Ragha. He built a masjid there. Building a masjid doesn't mean like raising, erecting the walls. It just means putting rocks around an area to say, this is a masjid. So what is the point of that? It is to say, 
It indicates that building mosques in a new land is a landmark that Islam has reached this land. And this is very, very interesting, that this land is not a land of kufr anymore. Because a lot of extremists today, they would call the West a board of disbelief. Well, Muslims actually live here. And they're free to practice their deen. The whole concept, and the, I don't want to go down that route, but the whole concept of the abode of belief and the abode of disbelief is completely irrelevant today. Why is it completely irrelevant today? First of all, why did the ulama divide the world, even though this, this division is controversial? Why did the ulama divide the world into the abode of kufr, the abode of war, and the abode of Islam? Why? To, in, to inform a believer who travels to an Muslim land, what ahkam will change according to that land. So for example, in a Muslim land, you have access to halal. All the uqud, all the contracts that you will make will be compliant with the sharia. Now you go to a land where the sharia is not in place. The uh, halal is not available. There is nothing that you can do about anything. You can't even pray. You don't have places. So what ahkam should you observe in that situation? What ahkam should you observe in that situation? So they say, for example, تَتَغَيَّرَ الْأَحْكَامِ Imam Abu Hanifa says, You can engage in, in invalid contracts in the land of Kufr. That's why some ulama say that it, it's acceptable to take mortgages and take this and take this. Why? Because you are in the land of disbelief. This is part of the ishtihad of the ulama before. But now the whole, so it's not an issue of war and, and fight and launching something against somebody else. It's an issue of, I'm outside my home now. What am I supposed to be doing? In case I'm outside my home and there is no adhan, how am I going to know that it's the time of prayer? How am I going to observe the Islamic injunctions? But that whole concept, which is not in the Quran, it's not in the Sunnah, it's ijtihad of the ulama, that is, was in response to a historical context, has changed completely where Muslims have become part and parcel of the West. This is their home. So the, the word, the abode of, of war, does not exist anymore. It was a historical ijtihad in response to a historical context that has completely changed. So... The Prophet ﷺ indicated that wherever there is a masajid, there is existence of Muslims. They have access to halal. Muslims can pray. Muslims can fast. Muslims can freely practice their religion. The Prophet ﷺ also established what we would call tents. And the tent of the Prophet ﷺ, his tent accommodated 40 men. Abu Rafi had, uh, was in charge of it. Uh, amongst the military, the strategic tactics in the, in the military field was uh, choosing the battlefields, choosing the field where the battle will happen. When the Prophet sallallahu uh, when they passed by the valley of Al-Mirar on their way to Hudaybiyah, the Prophet sallallahu he wanted to camp there. But then there is no water in that valley. So Ibn Badi said it indicates that camping sites are chosen to have water and grass. That's a military tactic. When you want to camp in a place and fight, you don't go and camp in a place that is barren, and then later on your enemy can easily defeat you because there is no access to water or grass or anything. Because of the importance of a leader of an army, there was always someone appointed as a personal guard 
and this is a job that is very very important here it's called al-haris al-shakhsi sayyidna abu ayyub radiyallahu ta'ala an protected the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam when he married a sayyida safiya in khaybar why because any assassination could have happened even though it was after the battle of khaybar but any assassination could have happened informants yeah. who are the informants these are individuals in the shama'il from the hadith of Hind ibn Abi Hala, he used to ask people about what's going on with people. You know, when a president or a person in a government or in a public position, he needs to read the news. <laughs> what is going on? What do people talk about? You can't just live in your ivory tower and you say, I am governing a country. You can't be governing a country and you don't know what is going on. So these informants or these uh, president office, these are people who would read the news. They will know what is going on. They will know what is happening in the society and they will sum it up to the president. It's like briefing the president of what is going on. There was a job that is very, very interesting as well related to uh, military that is called dissuaders. People who would dissuade an opposing army from coming to fight. <laughs> to save people's life, the Prophet ﷺ sent Nu'aym ibn Mas'ud al-Ash'i to dissuade people. And this is... Uh, this is a text that I, I wanted to, to share in the, in, the, in the very end of this, uh, of this uh, section where Imam ibn Asakir radiallahu ta'ala anhu narrates from um, Abdullah ibn Alqama al-Khuzai from his father that بَعَثَنِي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ سَلَّمْ بِمَالٍ لِأَبِي سُفْيَانِ We know that Abu Sufyan was at war with the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم when in between the time of Hudaybiyah and the time of coming back to Mecca. So Abu Sufyan was still a disbeliever. And the people of Mecca were in, in need. So he sent me with money to distribute amongst the poor among, uh, of Quraysh. And they were still mushriks. When I arrived in Mecca and gave the money to Abu Sufyan, he kept repeating, has anyone seen someone more caring or benevolent or keeping the relation with kin, of his kin uh, like this? قَالَ مَنْ رَأَ أَبَرَّ مِنْ هَذَا وَلَا أَوْصَلْ هل من رأى أبر من هذا ولا أوصل يعني النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم he said إنا نجاهد إذا ذوز أبو سفيان إنا نجاهد ونطلب دمه we strive seeking his blood we want to shed his blood وهو يبعث إلينا بالصلات and he sends us money and charities like we are after his his life and he's after our saving saving our life uh, moving to fiscal collections, these are the the uh, the, the issues related to money. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, as mentioned in a shifa by Al Qadi Iyad, he said during his life, Hijaz and Yemen and the whole of the Arabian Peninsula and the neighboring ends of the Levant and Iraq came under the rulership of the Messenger sallallahu alaihi Its tributes, fifths. Fifths are one-fifth of the war booty or one-fifth of the money that is taken without war from an enemy. And charities, even monarchs, wouldn't aspire to get part of which were brought to the Prophet ﷺ. Meaning the public treasury of the Muslim state at the time of the Prophet ﷺ was full as his personal right. Monarchs and kings sought peace with him. Of this, 
he kept not a single dirham. And this is very amazing how Al-Qadi Iyad mentions that. Of this money, of all of this wealth, he kept not a single dirham. He spent all of it in public benefit, to benefit the society and save others from need and strengthen Muslims with it. He gave strength to the Muslim community with it. We have a lot of jobs that are normally to take money. Now, these are the people who take money. So we have what we call Sahib al-Jizya, the tribute levier. This is the person, the, the first to pay, to pay it was the Christians of Najran. And we spoke extensively about the issue of jizya before. The jizya is required only from someone who's supposed to fight. He's at the age of fighting, but he is exempt from fighting. And remember, the jizya exempts the person from anything else. Zakah does not exempt the person from other taxes. Zakah is fluctuating, meaning it increases with your money. You have more money, you pay more. Zakah, where jizya is not fluctuating, it's a fixed amount. You pay jizya four dirhams per year, for example. You might end up actually paying zakah 50 dirhams, possibly even 100, possibly even 25. <laughs> so the zakah money, in reality, you pay that as, as your religious duty, but you still pay other things. While jizya, it's a fixed amount, and it is required from specific individuals. There is something called al-ushr. Al-ushr, these are the tithe levies. Harb ibn Ubaidillah ibn Umayr al-Thaqafi said, told the authority of his grandfather that a man from Banu Taghlib, he said, I came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and embraced Islam and he taught me Islam. He also taught me how should I take the sadaqah from my people. I then returned to him and said, Ya Rasulullah, I remembered whatever you taught me except the sadaqah. Should I levy tithe on them? He said, no. Tithes are to be levied on Christians and Jews. Al-A'shar, these were a specific tax. It's like import and export tax. <laughs> so the tithes were import and export tax. It's like 10% of trading. When you trade in a land and you pay that, you, 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 you export something and you import something, that, that you, you, they take from that usher. Right? So it was a specific type of tax that is required from a specific community when they trade. Muslims were also paying, but they were paying a different type of tax. So there was actually a division of which type of tax is required from which community. Land tax, that is called kharaj. Kharaj. In Al-Muatta, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam used a man in, in Khaybar, uh, called Sawad ibn Ghuzayya and Umar ibn al-Khattab sent Uthman ibn Hanif ibn Hunayf to measure the land and he found it to be 36 million garib 36 million 36,000 thousands of garib which is uh, one garib is 1,366 uh, square meters. So it's like a huge amount of land. Found a huge amount of land. And they decided that for every garib, 
they will pay a specific amount of money as a land tax. So the land tax was according to the size of the land. Zakah collectors, that's, that's, that's uh, quite well known. And we know the hadith of uh, Ibn Latbiya, who was collecting the money for the Prophet ﷺ, and then he said, well, people have given me gifts. And he said, well, why don't you go and sit at your mom's house and see if people are going to give you gifts or not? You send someone to do a public job, they can't accept gifts because this is bribery. Uh, and he وسلم, advised Khalid ibn Sa'id when he sent to him, he said, I sent you to your people, don't cause them any, uh, any, any injustice. There was a job related to the fiscal collections, it's called the crops estimator. He said, Abdullah ibn Rawah to estimate, and we mentioned that before. He, there was a man called Al Waqif endowments. You know, today. We have a big issue, a big challenge within the Muslim community of lack of endowments. So uh, there is a man called Mukhayriq, or Al-Mukhayriq. Al-Mukhayriq, he was a Jew who uh, fought with the Prophet Sallallahu in the Battle of uh, Uhud. And he endowed his nine orchards. Umar radiallahu ta'ala endowed a, a precious land. It's called Al-Habs. The Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala alayhim, they actually would give that to the Prophet Sallallahu as a public money. People can benefit from it. And this, is, this endowment is something that, as Imam Suhaili says, it was not known in Jahiliyyah. In Jahiliyyah, they didn't have endowments at all. And uh, the, the, the issue of uh, endowment is that you can't use it in the sense that you can't sell it. You have to keep it, and whatever is generated from it is spent on the purpose. And they say, So you might, for example, have a block of flats. And you say, well, this should be rented, and this money can be used to finance the studies of uh, students of religious studies, or sending people to Hajj and Umrah, or uh, 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 spending this money on the maintenance of a masjid. So you can't use it for another masjid. <laughs> if it is dedicated to specific people, for example, some Shafi'i scholars would, or some people would say, okay, this is for the Shafi'i students, or this is for the Maliki students, or this is for the Hanafi students. As they want to, for example, it's their madhab, it's the king's madhab, and he wants to promote it, so he will say, for example, for the speakers, for the orators. There was Ramadan zakah in charge, which we, we would call zakat Ramadan, you know, the zakat al-fitr. Someone was in charge of that sin, Abu Huraira, radiallahu ta'ala. I want to quickly uh, talk about the uh, currencies and the measurements during the time of the Prophet because this is very very important uh, and I have a, a text here from Sayyid Tawfiq al-Bakri that provides an early introduction to the issue of uh, notes he mentions in Sahariji al that Umar ibn al-Khattab used to use leather and uh, paper or something similar to that Manus, uh, in place of naqd in place of coins at time of need <laughs> so that's like an, a very early reference to to notes or possibly it is it is to could be that's another explanation of the text could be that it's a it's a it's like a pledge Someone who owes someone some money, he would write that down. <laughs> so in place of coins, it doesn't mean it becomes notes. But it means... Huh? Like an IOU. Yes. 
Yes, it's like a pledge. So if you don't have money, you write down on a leather, on leather that I owe such and such this amount of money. That's that's another way of understanding this. But at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, there was currencies. Hmm? There was currencies, but the currencies that were existing at that time was not just a coin. It was a coin with weight as well. It was a coin with weight. So the dirham is an amount of silver that had weight. And a dinar is an amount of gold that has also weight. In Sahih Muslim, Jabir ibn Abdullah brought, brought, from the Prophet, brought, uh, brought a camel from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with two uqiyya, two uh, awaqi of, of silver. And we will know what uqiyya uh, uh, is. One or two dirhams and one or two dirhams. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, narrated by Al-Qama, he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam forbade the break, uh, to break the the coins of Muslims. Naha Nabi sallallahu Sikka is the minted coins. Sikka is the minted coin. He did not allow, he forbade the breaking of it. Breaking of it like someone taking a dinar and then heating it up and then taking a piece of it. He said, don't do that. Why? Illa min ba's. This is very, very interesting. Uh, he forbade the break to break the coins of Muslims current amongst them that are in, 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 in circulation unless there is some defect. Unless some defect. Or, as they said, in the shak, unless you are in doubt. Is it fake or real? Then you can actually break part of it and see if it's actually genuine or not does that make sense like nowadays when when you when when you give 20 pounds or 50 pounds to someone and then they they will take a highlighter and just put it to check if it's actually real or not they wouldn't do that unless there is doubt there was a job of a man or an individual a job called the measurer ibn abbas radiallahu ta'ala mentioned someone who's a, a measurer the Prophet said, whoever buys food is not allowed to resell it until he measures it. Why? Because when you buy food, you might be buying it according to your trust with the individual. Then when you resell it quickly, you haven't, there is gharar there, there is deception there, there is ambiguity there. There was the storer as well. And there was also the laborer. That's an individual who will mark the charity camels or the public camels so that it's not used. When someone marks something and says, well, this is not for people to use. This is uh, something that is not in the book, but I, tr I tried to, make, to bring it to, to people. These are the weights that are traditionally used in, in the books of uh, fiqh. And during the time of the Prophet And what are they? And what is their weight in today? So in fiqh, for example, we read about dirham, right? We hear this word. It's a silver coin taken originally from the Greek word drachma. Yeah. So the dirham, what is the weight of dirham in today's world? It is 2.97, almost 2.975, almost 3 grams of silver. <coughs> the dinar, it's a piece of minted gold. It's not called dinar unless it is actually minted. Otherwise, it would be just called dhahab. It is 4.25, almost four and quarter grams of gold. 
We have also the, this word Daniq. That's a measurement. A Daniq is an Arabized word that refers to one sixth of a dirham. So the Daniq is one sixth of a dirham. You have the word Qirat. That's actually one piece of 24 pieces of a dinar. You have the word Uqiyya, which we mentioned before. Sometimes people will translate it as an ounce. But no. Uqiyya is a common weight in Arabia that equals 40 dirhams. <laughs> so Uqiyya is 40 dirhams, about 119 grams. And then you have the word Nash. That's a measurement as well. That's half an Uqiyya. And you have the word Nawah. Nawah literally means seed. Right? But in, in measurements, it's a word that equals 5 dirhams. And you have the word Ritl. That's quite common. Ritl is a measurement common in Baghdad or Iraq. That is, so they say Ritl Baghdadi, Ritl Iraqi, Ritl Iraq 500 Ritl. In the Shafi'iyah, they, they, they decide whether uh, a water is too much or less. If it's too much, it's not contaminated by any impurity. So if, an, if someone urinated in 500 uh, uh, Ritl of water, if your child urinated in that, it's not affected because it's too much water that to be affected by urine. But if it's less than that, regardless of whether it's affected or not, it's not used. That's the Shafi'iyah. Other madhabs have, have their own views as well. So it is about 382 grams. That's the Ritl. The Qintar, you know the word Qintar, it could mean a pile, but when it, it's used in measurements, it's a measurement that is equal to 1200 uqiyah so it's a 142 kilograms and then you have the word habba habba you know habba which also means seed it's a weight of the grains from which dinars and dirhams are composed remember that a dinar is made of 72 habbas it's like pence you know when the pound now is has how, how, how many pence are in a pound? A hundred, isn't it? But was that the case 27 years ago? No, I think no. it was... How, 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 how many pence were in, the, in a pound? Uh, one penny now, the old was two pennies, basically, two of those. Okay. And then you had 20 uh -huh. shillings. Yes, you see? So the habba is one part of 72 parts of a, a dinar. What about the mud? Yes, we're coming to that. So I, the reason why I actually differentiated between them is the first one is weights. These are the measurements. Now, this is the mud of the Prophet This is how the mud looked like. It's a container that is equal to 510 grams. You might find a bit of discrepancy between different madhabs, but the mud will not be more than 600 grams. So the mud is the volume of this measurement. It's like two open medium-sized hands. If you have like twice, that's, that's 500 grams. Sa' is how many mud? Four. Four mud. So we're talking about two kg. So in, 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 in Zakat al-Fitr, when we say sa' and mud, you know what it actually means. There is something called faraq. The faraq is three sa' So we're talking about six kg. And then bigger than that is something called wasa or whisk, wasak and wasak and whisk. Uh, that is 60 sa' in hijaz, 122 kg. Zakah that is required in crops 
is only required when your crops, grains, have reached five awsuqah. So 122 multiplied by five? 600. 600. So only when your crops, when your wheat, corn, or anything reaches 600 kg, then you can give zakah. Before that, there is no zakah due on you. Irq is a bank that is made of date trees. It takes about 30 kg of dates. So these were measurements that were there in the time of the Prophet And we can see from that that the Prophet market was very precise. We talked about all of these are the, the public jobs. We haven't talked about the state supervised jobs. But we have the spender. These are some of the the, the munfiq, that's an individual who has financial management of the Prophet Sallallahu budget, his personal budget. And then you have a job that's called hospitality, a few jobs under hospitality. You, had, you have in, uh, houses to receive guests, guest houses. You have uh, individuals who supervise them. And you have uh, gifts that are given to the guests with the cup. And you have uh, people who make them ready to meet the Prophet and then you have inns which we call Khan in a Khan in 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 in, in uh, it's the same meaning no? huh? the Khan the Khan yeah Khan Khan in, in Urdu what does Khan in Urdu mean the name yeah but it also does means it a place a, a place yeah. It's a place. No, it originally means a place. Originally, it means a place. Uh, Khan. Khan is, is a place. It's a place that is mainly for guests or for people who. It's like a hotel. It's like a hotel. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Says in the Quran, "Laisa alaykum junahun an tadkhulu buyutan ghayra maskunatin fiha mataun lakum." There is no blame on you if you enter houses that are not inhabited, but it has luggage of you. What house will not be inhabited by you, but it has luggage of you? It's a hotel, right? So there is no blame on you if you enter a place that has your luggage, but it's not it's not your house. And Umar radiallahu taala had something like that. We have also the medical services. So we had hospitals at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, physicians, traditional healers. These were people who used traditional medicine. Nurses, a quarantine, forecaster. These are individuals who uh, look at the, the forecast and other things. Lineage tracker. Forecaster to do with, uh, is to do with weather? It's to do with, yes, with, uh, with the weather. Yep. And... Lineage tracker, and you had what we would call the poor lodge. <laughs> the, that's the lodge for, huh? Not the Khan. That's that's for the poor people. That's for the poor people. They call it Darul Fuqara wal Munqatain. Someone who doesn't have anyone, he can just go there and eat and come out free food, free accommodation, and all of these for the for people who are poor. Like shelter. Kind of shelter house. Yeah. So. The Sahaba Radwanullah Ta'ala Alayhim and if uh, I could have uh, like talked about this but uh, I, I just want to, to, to mention a few things here.
from the, the some of these jobs because of the time as well. Uh, the issue of the, the 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 traditional healers and the physicians, and even the issue of the nurses. At the time of the Prophet sallallahu there was uh, an encouragement to learn medicine. Abu Dawood radiallahu ta'ala and this is a very very interesting uh, text as well. Abu Dawood radiallahu ta'ala narrates from Amr ibn Shaib from his father, from his grandfather. He uh, elevates that to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi Whoever pret- pretends to be a physician, like practices medicine, whoever practices medicine, and he is not known to have learned it, he is a guarantor, meaning if any damage happens, he is in trouble. <laughs> so we take from that text that you cannot practice a profession unless you have studied it. Whoever practices medicine, even though he's not known to be a physician or he, has, he hasn't learned it, this is very, very interesting. The Prophet, as Sayyid Aisha, is narrated, Urwa ibn Zubair, who is there, the nephew of Sayyid Aisha, said to her, I'm not surprised at how much poetry you know. وَإِنَّمَا مِنْ عُلْمُكِ بِالطِّبِّ I'm really surprised at how did you know medicine? He's talking to Asad Aisha. I'm not surprised at how much you know poetry because you grew up in that environment. But how did you know medicine? فَقَالَتْ إِنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ كَانَ يَسْقَمُ عِنْدَ آخِرِ عُمْرِهِ Towards the end of his life, the Prophet ﷺ used to feel ill. فَكَانَتْ تَقْدُمُ إِلَيْهِ يُفُودُ الْعَرَبِ مِنْ كُلِّ وَجْهٍ That people from every tribe would come to him, delegation. فَيَنْعَتُ لَهُمُ الْأَنْعَاتِ And they would describe, prescribe something to him. فَكُنْتُ أُعَالِجُهُ So I used to treat him. <laughs> like he, they would give him a prescription. Or they say, try this, ya Rasulullah. So I would help him. So that gave her what? That gave her experience. Al-Harith hmm? ibn Kalada was a famous uh, famous physician in Arabia, Al-Harith ibn Kalada. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam commanded Sayyidina Sa'ad to ask, to go to him to seek medication. وَلَمْ يَكُنْ قَدْ أَسْلَمْ Even though Al-Harith ibn Kalada was not a Muslim. In fact, <laughs> injections were known at the time of the Sahaba. <laughs> Injecting medicine into the body as Imam Abu, da- Abu Nu'aym al-Asbahani narrates, عن رجل أصابه وجع فأخذ بها فبرئ Like a man had pain and he was injected. The medicine was injected to his body. How was it injected? How did, how did it look? I actually uh, was, was writing, uh, was giving a speech some time ago in a charity. I can't remember exactly the information that, was, that I uh, compiled about how uh, artificial limbs were actually an, an invention within Islam. <laughs> like one of the tabi'een قُطِعَتْ رِجْلُهُ فَاتَّخَذَ رِجْلًا مِنْ خَشْرًا He lost his, his, his leg and he used a wooden leg. 
واخر انذر هي يوزد سمثينج سيميلر تو جلاسز كان يلبس عوينه لايك يوز تو تو وير سمثينج سيميلر تو لينس بوسيبلي عينا من زجاج لايك ان اي فروم فروم جلاس بوسيبلي بيكوز هي لوست هيز اي اور بيكوز هي اكشلي يوز تو هاف ا ماجنيفاير اور اور جلاسز ا بير اوف جلاسز amongst the things as well uh, that were known at the time of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was nurses and uh, there was a a, a, a good uh, bunch of them said rubayy bint muawwadh al ansari she said we used to go to the battlefield with the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam offering water to the people serving them we uh, we would bring back those who are wounded to al-madina al-munawwara rufayda al-aslamiya umm ziyad al-ashga'iya and umm waraqa bint abdullah al-ansariya and all of these individuals it is even mentioned <laughs> that abdullah ibn al-zubair radiyallahu ta'ala an he became sick he became ill in mecca so fasta'jara ajuzan litumridahu he hired an old woman to look after him fakanat taghmizu rijlahu she used to massage his feet you know or or or, or treat his feet wa tafli ra'sahu and she used to to to, to how do you say uh, do you say that in english goes through she used to go through his hair with, like, yeah like if there are lice or anything yeah. like that to treat that because he's ill but you see istajara ajuzan an old ajuzan an old woman to do that so the ulama took from that that You can't actually hire a young woman. So this is very, very important as well because people might think it's just a, an, an open door. Yes, get, get, get a nurse. Yeah. Uh, there were loads of crafts in the society of the Prophet wasallam. but I, I'm aware that the time is, is running. So I will just uh, mention something very, very important in the introduction. of trades and common crafts that the Sahaba traded in sea and lands and they worked in their date farms uh, it's mentioned that some of the masters of this nation said regarding the tradition the difference of my ummah the hadith you know ikhtilafu ummati rahma there is a hadith ikhtilafu ummati rahma this is al The words of Al-Adud, Imam Al-Adud, Sahib Al-Mawqif, the hadith that some, uh, some masters of this nation said regarding the tradition, the difference of my nation is a mercy, that it's always quoted in, re- in relation to opinion, that the difference of opinion is a mercy. But he says, it refers to the different zeals and aspirations regarding different sciences and disciplines, that people have different inclinations, some focus on fiqh, some focus on theology, some, fiqh, uh, some focus on crafts. and different jobs as well. The Sahaba, Rudwanullah ta'ala alayhim, they were engaged in business in their markets, and in fact, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala an, he said this, whoever trades in something three times and he achieves no luck, should shift to something else. I mentioned that earlier today. And Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala an, when he used to see someone and he likes him and says, MashaAllah, he asks, what is the job? What, what, what job does he do? And if they say, he doesn't have a job. They said, I lost my esteem for him. So having a job and doing something is very, very important. But there are etiquettes and ethos that relate to business and trade in Islam. The first of these is seeking 
knowledge before engaging in business. He said, مَا لَا يَجُوزُ لِأَحَدٍ أَنْ يُقْدِمَ عَلَىٰ عَمَلٍ A person should not engage in an activity حَتَّى يَعْلَمَ حُكْمَ اللَّهِ فِيهِ Until you know what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say about that. They say in ibadat and in muamalat at least you should know the general hukm of it. Is it halal? Is it haram? Umar radiallahu ta'ala said, the fresher should not enter our market until they learn the matters of the religion. <laughs> you shouldn't bring someone who doesn't know how to trade and he doesn't know what's halal and haram. Sayyidina Ali radiallahu ta'ala says, man, uh, man ittajara fi shay'in, uh, like whoever, man ittajara bighayri fiqhin faqadir tabaka fi riba. Like whoever trades without fiqh falls into riba. So that's number one. Number two, truthfulness and adventure. Being a, an adventurer when it comes to, uh, to trade and business. Ibn Majah narrated, a truthful, trusted, and trusted Muslim trader is with the matters. And another hadith, Al-Manawi, he says, At-tajiru al-jabanu mahroom, a coward trader will be deprived. Because he's a coward. He doesn't want to try anything. Staying away from unlawful. As uh, Imam Ibn Abdul Bar mentions, so adventure is like taking risks. Taking risks because that's what that's part part and parcel of, of your trust in Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala as well. Going out early if you're going to the market. You know, a lot of people when when they deal in business, waking up for it and and, and and focusing on it. These are some of the common crafts and activity in the society at the time of the Prophet So in trade we had traders, we had mercers. These were the people who trade, traded specifically in silk and fine uh, fabrics. We had perfume dealers, people who dealt in, in perfumes. We had measurers, people who sold measurements. And you had money exchangers, <laughs> people who would exchange uh, Roman dinars with Persian dinars, for example, because each and every one of these was actually different. You had the spear dealer, someone who makes spears and weapons. We had food sellers and sugar sellers and druggists, someone who sells medicines and, and herbs that will be used in medication. You had tanning seller, someone who sells material that you will use for tanning leather. And there was leather seller, that's someone who sells Leather, whether it is tanned or it's not. And Ba'u'laban, person who sells milk. And there was even water seller. A person who will go and he will grab the water from the wells and from fountains and from rivers and he will come and sell it. Because people didn't have access, clear, simple access to clean water all the time. So that's the trade side. Each and every one of these actually, we can talk about it extensively. But I, I just want to give you this, uh, this quick uh, understanding of how the society was very active. Industry. You had the weavers. And you had the tailors, the khayyat. Someone who would make uh, thobes for the Prophet wasallam and make different types. You had carpenters. And actually, close to a carpenter is a man who makes... Uh, cradles, cradle maker, 
like today, people who make Moses baskets, cradle makers. Potter, Khazaf, that's someone who makes pots. And jeweler, Sawag. And engraver, that's a person who makes, who engraves things either on stones or even on uh, rings and gold and silver. And you had the mill maker, the person who makes mills. They used to, they used to that for 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 uh, uh, crushing their wheat. And you had the tanner, that's the person who will tan the leather. One of the uh, the mothers of the believers, I think it's Sayyidah Maymuna radiallahu ta'ala anha. She used to to tan the leather and sell it, and then she will take the money and send it for charity, give it for in charity. You had the sculptor, someone who would nahat, he would engrave things, makes either suwar or even 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 other things. He would engrave uh, certain stones in different shapes. And the oiler, the person who sells oil and he extracts oil. And he had the blacksmith, obviously, who would make different types of, of products. And he had the builder, the banna, Talq al-Yamami, was one of the Sahaba who was uh, an expert in, in building. And you had the the dyer, the person who dyes clothes, give them the fabrics, they change its color. And you had the, the frond weaver. These are uh, individuals as well who had uh, specific, uh, specific jobs. The fr- you know what a frond weaver is? Khawas. You know what a khawas is? Khawas basically in those days, you know the, the, um, the, the leaves of date trees? When they're dried, they, they, weave, they use them in weaving and making baskets and things. So that's called frond weaver. <laughs> I said, Salman al-Farisi had that job. As a frond weaver, they would make, make baskets from them. They would make bags. They would make loads of, other, loads of other things. And then there was a sword maker. These are mainly industrial jobs or crafts. But then there are also jobs that are mainly focused on uh, services. There was a swimmer. What would the swimmer do? The swimmer's job, interestingly enough, was there to help people who couldn't swim cross places. <laughs> if someone is unable to cross a river or something, someone will carry them and he will swim. <laughs> they are on their back or something. He'll swim with that, with that individual. If there are no... Remember, it, it could be a, a valley is full of flood, for example. So they need someone. There was a cook and woodman, that's a person who collects wood, a baker, a hunter. And then you had the beautician, someone who beautifies ladies. She would prepare the ladies for their husbands before marriage and, and then they would beautify them. And that was something well known in the society. You had some, <laughs> that's, that's a very interesting uh, profession. It's called Al-Mustadillu ala mahallil ma. The one who finds the place of water. And, and I, I want to read the text that relates to this. In the narration, in, in the biography of Abdullah ibn Amr ibn Qurayz al-Qurashi, he was brought to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam put his saliva in his mouth. So this man, he said, إِنَّهُ كَانَ لَا يُعَالِجُ أَرْضًا إِلَّا ظَهَرَ الْمَاءِ he would not walk in, in a place he would know where would water be. Uh, to, to bring that closer to your minds. 
in countries like I have seen that in Egypt, and I'm sure that if you have, if you go back to Pakistan, you you know water pumps. How do you decide where to dig the water pump? How would you decide that? The tuning fork they used to use. Huh? Was a certain tuning fork they used to use, right? They use people who would say, "Oh, there is water here," because if you put a water pump all the way down, it's so much effort, isn't it? So much effort to extract. You might actually dig it deep, and then at the end, oh. There is no water, isn't it? Yeah. We have seen that, and after some time the water dries out and then they have to move it on and on. So that individual, that's a job. That's called al-mustadillu ala mahal al That's an individual who knows which area. And how would they know that? They would know that by, it's called this ilm. This, ilm, this is a ilm, this is a discipline called ilm al-riyafa. It's the ilm of riyafa. That is, in batul ma, extracting water. If there is water in this place, or there is no water in this place, underground water. So they say, they smell the dust. <laughs> and they might even smell the plants that grow in a place. Or they might even follow the movement of certain animals. Because animals have so much relation with the earth. So they know if the animals are, are in a specific place, they can... How, would, how did people know that a Sayyidah Hajar is in that place? They looked at the, the birds. So this is a very interesting, uh, <laughs> this is a very interesting job that, that, that exists and possibly still exists in some societies still today. And uh, you had the matchmaker, obviously the khatiba, the lady who will, uh, who will match Mr. Wright and, and, and Mrs. Wright. <laughs> you had the, the, the copper. And the barber, and it was actually a joint job. The person who's halak, he cuts people's hair, and he do cupping as well. He had the midwife, the qabila, and the broker, and the witness, and the butcher, and the representative, someone who can represent others in a gathering or in a in in in, in front of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And then you had uh, farmers and farm workers. Uh, these are like this is the, the this is the last slide, so I, I I know we didn't give much details of these jobs, but this is the last slide, and these this slide shows us that the society of the Prophet inshallah will, will let you go in five minutes, was a very balanced society. It was not as rigid as we sometimes think of it. it there were people who lived their life in ease and simplicity. They had singers. <laughs> So as much as uh, music is subject to controversy between people, people who say it's acceptable, it's acceptable, people say it's not acceptable, they uh, associate it with uh, unwanted things, disliked things, haram things. Obviously, if it's associated with haram, it's haram. But if music is, is uh, distinguished from all of this, it remains a controversial issue between people. But there were singers anyway. The Abyssinian boys danced in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, their folklore dancing. You know, many countries today, in Scotland, they have their own dances. Every country has its own folklore dance. The maid of Hassan ibn Thabit, عن, she used to sing on the day of Eid. And the Prophet ﷺ even passed by, he, she sang for him and his friends. And the, the, the Prophet ﷺ passed by them. And uh, she said, 
in lahautu min haraji like there is there any blame on me if i if i sing <laughs> the prophet sallam looked at her and he said la haraj no blame he wouldn't sit and listen himself sallallahu alaihi wasallam to singing but he wouldn't ban it if it is done in a proper way there was a woman called hamama and another woman called arnab and a woman called zainab al ansariya all of these were ladies uh, who were known singers like well known singers Oh, that, that's what, that was their names. That was their names. Remember that names, names follow the society that they're in. Arnab literally means rabbit. But, but that's, that's how the society knew individuals. You remember that people have... The names follow the context that you're in. Like if no one would call his son Kalb today. But, but back in the days, the word Kalb, which means dog, was something with a sign of praise. Because the, 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 the dog is an animal that protects, it follows its, uh, its owner. So if you, there is a whole tribe called the tribe of Kalb during the time of the Prophet ﷺ. No one would call his son Sakhr, rock. Well, but actually, there, there are actors, like the rock. Yeah, yeah, the rock. So you see, <laughs> so it's not, it's not very far from what, what the Prophet ﷺ had in his, at his time. So the names come from the society. There was competitions, you know, Prophet Sallallahu we know the hadith of Sayyidah Aisha when he raced with her and she uh, she won the race she uh, was like a runner and then later on he waited and she put on weight and then he raced with her and he won and he said this is for that tit for tat mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, there was wrestling in the society the Prophet Sallallahu wrestled Durukana who was a famous wrestler and when, when the Prophet Sallallahu introduced him to Islam and Rukana said, no one can beat me. And he said, I can beat you. So he wrestled with him, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And he would allow the Abyssinian boys to wrestle with each other in his masjid, Sallallahu Alaihi Pet keeping. We earlier talked about puppies. Right? And Sayyidina Al-Hasan, Radiallahu Ta'ala, having a puppy. Uh, and the famous hadith of Abu Umair. And remember that the, 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 the dogs are tahir, according to the Malikiyah. Isn't it? I mean, so it's... Uh, it's not something that is like, it's, it's not like a one say. The Maliki Madhab, in the, in, the, in the Maliki Madhab, the dog is pure. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not declare something to be impure except the saliva. Huh? Saliva. No, even the saliva. Even the saliva is not considered to be impure. Well, the feces of the, the non edible animals. It is the meat, the flesh of swine. Only the flesh of swine. But if the that dog licks you, then you have to do the washing. The Malikiya say this is for ta'abud. Ta'abud. They say it is just as obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But does it indicate that it is najis? No, they said no. Why? Because if it was because if it was an ajasa, if it was an impurity, they wouldn't have said, the Prophet wouldn't have said seven times. They wouldn't have said seven times. He would have said, wash it as much as you can so that the najasa is removed. They used to hunt with them as well. Yes, that's another proof for the Maliki. That first of all, when I say that something is impure, when I say that something is impure, it doesn't require seven times to wash it. Does it? It is. Huh? It is impure. No, when something is impure, does it require seven times to remove that impurity? It stays impure. It stays impure. Or it might take less than that. 
And remember, the Prophet also said, When the dog licks huh, in a, the bone. So they said it is only related to that bone. So if the dog licks your clothes, you just wash it once or twice. Huh? Not seven times. Now, so what would one do if he follows the Shafi'i Madhab and he's convinced of this opinion? Khalas, move to the Maliki Madhab. Even in the Maliki, even in the Maliki, I read in the book of um, I read that the Malikis, they have to, like, to wash seven times the Yes, to wash seven times the bowl. So that means it's not the bowl, not the clothes. The bowl, not the clothes. Remember that. No, not the clothes. Otherwise, all these Malikiya who has dogs at home, they would have to wash their clothes seven times. That's it's water, if if water, it's huh? Water wasn't that available for you to. Yes, but that's why they said the number seven is ta'abudi. It's tawqif. The Prophet said seven. It means seven, and he linked it to to that. Even eating animals, like what what to eat and what not to eat. You know, there is big difference between the madhahib. Eating dogs, by the way, is makruh in the Maliki Madhab. It's disliked. Yeah, it's disliked. It's disliked. Some, some Maliki I said it's haram, but uh, the opinion of Maliki is it's makruh. It's strongly disliked. But remember, we cannot decide the food of others based on our urf. Like Sheikh Hamza, I heard him saying, like Koreans and Chinese, they need a Madhab as well. <laughs> They need a mother if, if these people were, were to accept Islam. Cats and things like this. So the, the, the Maliki, I just take the text. The text says, Or the flesh of a swine. This is impurity. So the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ regarding the dog, they say, well, yes, wash it seven times. But seven times is for ta'abud. The Prophet ﷺ said, do this, we do that. Now, anyway, so... Uh, Pet keeping, the hadith of Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, that the Prophet sallallahu family had a beast, they had a pet. Kana lahum dabba, kana lahum wahsh, like a little pet. When the Prophet sallallahu would go out, it will move around. When the Prophet sallallahu is at home, it rests. Uh, the Prophet sallallahu said to Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anha, when he complained that he is lonely, he said, اتخذ لك زوجا من حمام, take a pair of pigeons. أو اتخذ ديكن or take a roaster, it will wake you up for salah. Take a roaster. Like, like better to have a roaster at home or to have like a... Hmm? Uh, finally, this is very interesting uh, narration of Sayyidina Mu'adh radiallahu ta'ala an. You know, in the, in the weddings, they used to sprinkle sugar and almond on people. They used to sprinkle sugar and almond on the bride and the groom. <laughs> Nowadays, they, 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 they sprinkle petals. As if they, they, they want to eat it, they will not be able to eat it. So the Prophet one day, he had, he had the, the, the big tray of sugar and almond. And he said, Why don't you grab? You know, when people grab from each other. They said, look, you told us not to grab things, to be polite. That is in the war. When there is war booty, don't push it and pull it from each other. So he وسلم, started pulling and they were pulling from him. And they were taken from his, from his, uh, from his, uh, his plate. Uh, 
So these are like some some of the things that are in this book. We didn't go into each and every uh, uh, job that uh, that is there. But I, inshallah, Taala, I hope at least to translate this uh, summary, inshallah, with a hadith in every in every job. But inshallah, I'll be sending this uh, this presentation to you. In uh, in uh, in PDF, you can keep it inshallah as uh, as a reference, and uh, at least we managed to go through the whole thing to see how multi multiplicity of jobs were there at the time of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Muhammadu alaihi wasallam. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin.